Chapter 10 of Your Pay Envelope. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in August 2022. Your Pay Envelope by John Richard Meader. Chapter 10 Labor's Full Product. My dear Smith, there is a good reason why the socialists are unwilling to tell you just what their state will be or how it will work. They themselves do not know. You can divide the present-day socialists into two classes. The best of them are utopian dreamers, theorists who hope that things will work out all right and who are willing to take a chance. The worst of them are mere office-seekers, eager for place or pelf, and willing to become special pleaders for the oppressed in return for their votes. There was a time when the socialists were actuated by a high and unselfish ideal. It was a fallacious ideal, it was true. They were fighting for principles that would have worked the ruin of the nations had they been put into practice, but as you know, a man can be both sincere and wrong at the same time. The early socialists were sincere, even though they were wrong. But those socialists of today, who have turned the philosophy of socialism into a purely political movement, and who do not ask you to believe as they do, so long as you vote the way they want you to vote, have neither high ideals nor good principles. They are just as bad political grafters as have ever been harbored by any of the old political parties. If the socialists do not know much about the practical operations of their utopian commonwealth, however, we can work out the problems for ourselves. All that is necessary to do, John, is to collect the different pieces of the socialist program and fit them together, just as you did the jigsaw puzzles with which you used to amuse yourself when a boy. For example, let us take still another phase of the socialist promise— to see that every man shall get the full product of his labor. The socialists have been quick to realize that this fallacy is the best vote-catching device that they have yet invented. You make it all, they explained, and it is all yours. Yes, it is all yours, they declare, but do you get it? No, you do not begin to get all of your earnings. If you are very lucky, you may get one-third of what you earn. If you are less lucky, you have to be content with one-fifth. It is only under socialism that you will get all your earnings. This is the promise that Blatchforth makes in Merry England, page 189. It is this that countless socialist writers have promised. It is this promise that is used as a text by practically every soapbox orator in this country, or in any other for that matter. The right to the entire product of labor and capital together. That is the main tenet of the gospel of socialism. Now, John, I am willing to admit for the sake of argument that there is considerable justice in the worker's demand for a larger portion of the output of his industry. Of course, we cannot admit that he is entitled to the entire output of labor and capital combined, but this point need not delay us long, since he never will get it. He can't expect to have the full product now, and he needn't expect to have it, even if socialism triumphs, and the modern system of private ownership is buried six feet underground. Neither socialism nor any other system of production will ever be able to make this promise good. 
Do you see what this means? It simply shows that the socialist is trying to fool you with promises that can never be kept. He tells you that he will give you the entire value of the product. He does not tell you how he is going to find out how much it is, and he is also very careful to conceal the fact that even if he knew exactly how much the value of your labor time amounted to, he couldn't give you the full amount that you produce. He couldn't do it today, nor a hundred years from today, nor a million years from today, simply because it is a proposition that is just as impossible as to make two plus two equal five. While the great mass of socialist writers and speakers are so unscrupulous that they continue to agree to espouse a policy which they know they can never fulfill, there are other socialists who are more honest and who frankly admit that this program is entirely impracticable. The latter are not the socialists whose writings are exploited for the instruction of possible converts, however. When a man has caught socialism and caught it bad, it is safe for him to read what they have written, but for the beginner it is best to feed him on the pre-digested and carefully censored output of the propaganda committees. The soapbox orator informs you that under socialism all industry will be owned collectively and will be conducted in the interests of the workers exclusively. What does the worker imagine this to mean? He pictures himself as a part owner of the factory in which he works. He sees himself dividing the profits of that manufacturing concern with fifty or a hundred or five hundred persons now constituting the working force of the establishment. Believing that this is what socialism promises to do for him, he becomes interested immediately. Naturally, the soapbox orator doesn't try to correct this impression. Sidney Webb, however, tells a different story. He knows that socialism does not intend to do anything of this kind. Turn to Fabian Tract Number 51, page 16, and you will read the following. Quote, the whole of our creed is that industry should be carried on, not for the profit of those engaged in it, whether masters or men, but for the benefit of the community. We recognize no special right in the miners, as such, to enjoy the mineral wealth on which they work. The Lester Boot operatives can put in no special claim to the profits of the Lester Boot factory, nor the shopman in the cooperative store, for the surplus of its year's trading. It is not for the miners, bootmakers, or shop assistants as such that we socialists claim the control and the profits of industry, but for the citizens. End quote. This is quite a different proposition, isn't it? Socialism doesn't mean that you are to be permitted to turn the factory in which you work into a profit-producing concern for your own benefit. It does mean, however, that the profit produced by all the concerns in the entire country shall be lumped together, and after all the losses and necessary charges have been deducted, the sum left shall be divided among all the people, a system under which you would receive one-fifty, one-seventy, or one-ninety millionth part, according to the population of the nation. This puts the matter in a less attractive light. But we have by no means fully disclosed the iniquity of those who are trying to fool the voters with false promises. Let us now try to find out what charges must be deducted from the total profits before this division can be made. Not all businesses are today successful. 
some of them fail because the people do not buy the articles which it was expected they would buy and it is quite possible that such mistakes might be made under socialism it is entirely probable that some kind of mistakes would be made and that there would be approximately as great a proportion of losses with collective management as we now have under individual management these items would of course have to be deducted before the division of profits could be effected the socialists claim that a large part of the profits of which the worker is robbed goes to meet the expenses of rent and interest two factors that would not have to be considered in the cooperative commonwealth they do not seem to take into account the fact that the money applied to rent interest and profit is not stored away or otherwise taken out of circulation even to-day the greater part of this sum finds its way back to industry by providing for extensions in business renewals of machinery enlargements of factories and the establishment of new industries there are items of expense that we cannot dodge even under socialism factories and machinery do not last forever new methods must constantly be adopted an ever-increasing popular demand necessitates an extension of manufacturing facilities do the socialists expect us to believe that on the establishment of a cooperative commonwealth everything will be income and there will be no outlay all profit and no expenses then we must provide for the payment of the huge army of socialist officials for there will be practically no end to the number of overseers superintendents clerks bookkeepers auditors cashiers and statisticians to say nothing of the host of minor officials all of whom will have to be paid at the same rate to say the least as the laborers in talking about this kind of workers to-day the socialist agitator is very apt to dub them a non-producing class if you will examine socialist statistics carefully you will find that the statisticians almost invariably omit to consider the amount paid such workers as an item of expense that they are even likely to include the sum represented by these salaries in the profits of the employing class should the time ever come when the socialists themselves are called upon to provide the payroll for the nation they will discover that the directive and executive workers and all the persons employed to carry out their part of the program will call for the expenditure of a tremendous sum of money tremendous as this amount would be to-day however the present outlay for this purpose would be but a drop in the bucket compared to the cost of the system that socialism would have to establish let us see what the socialists themselves the more frank and honest kind of socialists have to say about this matter deville in socialism internationalism and revolution says quote, after deducting from the product a portion to take the place of taxes a portion to replace the labor consumed one to extend the scale of production one to insure against disasters as floods winds lightning etc one to support the incapable one for administration one for sanitation one for education etc the producers of both sexes will distribute the balance among themselves in proportion of the quantity of ordinary labor respectively furnished mrs besant in fabian essays page one sixty three has very similar ideas upon this point she says quote, 
out of the value of the communal produce must come rent of land payable to the local authorities rent of plant needed for working of industries wages advanced and fixed in the usual way taxes reserve fund accumulation fund and the other charges necessary for the carrying on of the communal business all these deducted the remaining value should be divided among the communal workers as a bonus End quote. a bonus yes but would there be any bonus these who are familiar with the history of the labor movement in france will naturally recall louis blanc's unfortunate experiment with the national workshops in eighteen forty eight the provisional government issued a proclamation engaging to guarantee work to all citizens and promising to put an end to the sufferings of workmen by decreeing the formation of a permanent commission for the workers louis blanc who was at the head of this movement to abolish all profits of capital and to establish the perfect equality of all workers without considering skill or activity developed the national workshops scheme at first the workmen threw themselves into the project with great heartiness even working overtime but this was merely a temporary condition to aid the great tailoring workshop the government gave it an order to provide twenty five thousand uniforms for the national guard the building in which the work was conducted was provided absolutely free of cost and the government advanced all the capital required in the experiment the price agreed upon was to be eleven francs per uniform each of the fifteen hundred workmen was given two francs a day as subsistence money and was promised his pro rata share in the profits but there were no profits instead the uniforms actually cost when finished sixteen francs apiece and the government had to stand the loss you may read the whole story of the commercial disaster which the attempt to introduce collective ownership brought upon france the experiment ended in a panic such as the nation had never known and the revolt of the workmen which followed was suppressed by the troops only after ten thousand persons had been killed or wounded don't you think that i am right when i say that it will take something more than the mere assertion of a deville or an annie besant to persuade a sane and sensible people that collective ownership is more practical to-day than it was some sixty years ago the admissions that these socialists have made seem conclusively frank yet robinson in industrial problems page one seventy nine gives us a concrete example that may throw an additional side light upon the situation he says in a socialist state if a laborer in ten hours can produce five pairs of shoes he could not have as his reward for that labor five pairs of shoes for while he was making these shoes educational work had to be done hospitals had to be operated the mentally and physically incapable had to be cared for all socially necessary labor had to be carried on and the cost of the maintenance of these things is a part of the cost of the social product richardson goes on to calculate how much the shoemaker might get for his product but he entirely overlooks the very grave possibility that after all the items which mrs besant and he have enumerated and all of deville's etc have been deducted the worker might get nothing at all in short are we not justified in questioning the wisdom of this scheme 
under the present system the wages of a worker represent a first charge against the business and profits interests and rent can be paid only out of what is left if anything is left after he has secured his share the adoption of the socialist system would change all that the worker might get a beggarly subsistence wage to keep him alive and able to work but nothing else would be paid to him until all the expenses of the state including the cost of its numberless agents and officials had been deducted justly does Schaffel say in the quintessence of socialism page one twenty two quote, the leading promise of social democracy is practically and theoretically untenable it is a delusive bait for the extreme individualistic fanatic craving for equality among the masses End quote. after seeing all this john do you think it possible that the condition of the worker could be improved by the adoption of socialist methods in view of the very dubious prospect of a possible bonus what do you think of a man who would go to the lengths that spargo goes in his attempt to befuddle the brain of those who are too ignorant or too careless to investigate this question for themselves under socialism spargo says socialism page two thirty six if jones prefers objects d'art and smith prefers fast horses or a steam yacht each will be free to follow his inclination so far as his resources will permit. Let us be thankful for this concession. We shall in this respect at least be no worse off than we are today. At the present moment, Jones can buy his art objects and Smith his fast horses or his steam yacht, if the resources of Smith and Jones will permit. The question in which we are interested, John, is not what you and Jones will be permitted to do, but what you will be able to do. And I sadly fear that Spargo, who must know the logical effects of socialism, had a good laugh at your expense when he penned those words. End of chapter 10. Labor's Full Product.